We are so excited for you to listen to this breakout from Orange Conference by Joseph Sojourner about innovating our ministries. Joseph Sojourner, who we like to call Sojo, is a voice of creativity and leadership for this generation. Sojo was recently the owner of Two Cents Creative Thinkers, an Atlanta-based creative agency, and he's a trusted voice to next-generation business leaders for many events throughout the world. Sojo's been featured on NBC's Your Move in candid conversations with Andy Stanley and has recently joined our team here at Orange as the new vice president for Orange Leaders. Also, he's my new boss, and we could not be more thrilled. We can't wait for you to get to learn from Sojo, so let's dive in. If this is our first time meeting, hello, my name is Joseph Sojourner. Everyone calls me Sojo. Uh, I started my journey right here in Atlanta, Georgia uh, at the church, worked in it uh, wonderfully five years, but honestly been on the journey with uh, churches, the Big C Church, uh, for a little bit over uh, about, about a decade and a half. So it's about 15 years now working with them. Started uh, here at North Point, got a chance to grow, become uh, one of the creative directors, especially over events before moving into camps. I don't know if we got big stuff, any big stuff people in there. Okay, so I was Panama City Beach. Okay, two. Okay, it was two people in that chapter of my life. And so I got a chance to be creative director over that before starting a creative agency. Now, over these past few years, obviously a lot has changed. And although I still get a chance to walk with a lot of churches, sit with executive teams as well as creative departments and really talk about this idea of innovation, I'll tell you why I use that word now a lot more than creativity. But as I get a chance to talk about this topic and really say, hey, what does it look like within churches and organizations, uh, God began to kind of pull me to another space that I didn't see coming. And so I got an offer to come down to a place called Trillith Studios, and it's the home of Marvel right here in Georgia. I don't know if you know, uh, Atlanta's now, or Georgia is now the number one place where movies are shot in the world. So we have a a lot of productions coming here, but obviously that huge influx of a lot of people is changing the culture of Georgia. So they say, hey, what can we begin to do so that when people and creative teams and crews and talent begin to arrive here in Georgia, they can experience something different than Hollywood? And Hollywood was started a long time ago, but we have a chance to start something here. How does Georgia want to handle this massive influx of creatives, some of which are even beginning to trickle into the church as they're finding uh, discontentment in their fields that they were coming here previously for? So as we begin to really dissect that and ask that question, they say, hey, could we bring you down as director of experience? A very vague title, but you know, any creative loves, there was a director of experience. I like that. I can, I can really work with that. I can grow that into something, uh, which ended up being very, very difficult because now you're going everywhere. But I was like, who are you? What's your title again? Director of experience. Okay, thank you. Can you please get off my movie set? So, uh, and so we started with this idea of, hey, how can we become a light to the lot? And that was, that was what I said. I said, hey, the goal of this is to become a light to the lot. How can we make this a warmer place to work? How can we allow this to build? How can we build a culture here in Georgia that allows creatives to feel the difference and truly say, hey, this is a place that I want to stay and reside? But here's the, here's the complex. So here, here's the complicated situation I ran into. Uh, you're running into uh, organizations and companies that already have a culture a really, really vibrant culture that they're proud of. So when you're going to Disney and saying, we want to talk about how to reimagine culture, Disney says, what? We have a culture. We teach culture. People come from all around to learn our culture. And so you begin to really see that even though this industry, which, is, which drives uh, creatives extremely hard and pushes them towards 16-hour days, well, as creatives began to leave, I began to go back to the churches and say, there's a reason why you're beginning to have these high-capacity, high-caliber creatives entering your church because this industry's rules are not going to change. People want content in a higher rate than ever before. 
and it's pushing them and driving them all the way till they have nothing left and they're coming into your churches literally lost, dark, and hoping that this is a place that's different. And I think that we are in, we're on the precipice of something that's really exciting because here we are as churches that say, okay, as we're welcoming you in, it is going to look vastly different. It may not be able to have budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars and you might not have CGI of people swooping in and Thanos. We may not have all of that to offer, but what we do have is the most life-changing story and this story is happening in real life. And as they begin to realize that the story they get a chance to create is also the story that they're living, I think these creatives are beginning to experience something that's much, much greater than just work. They're beginning to experience purpose. And so I'm passionate about this right now. I'm passionate about this topic. So that's just the backstory as to who I am and why I'm up here talking to y'all even about this topic, the audacity of me. Well, that's the reason why I have such audacity. The reason I use the word innovate over create, and I love creativity, but it's such a vague word and it's oftentimes over, it's overused and oftentimes it's become pretty cliche, whereas innovate is very specific. Each and every one of us want to begin to innovate, want to strive towards innovation. And it's easier to put a system on innovation than creativity because creativity oftentimes is all opinion-based. Innovation is data-based. And so it allows us to begin to shift and have practical conversations with the creatives in our churches. Not too long ago, I had a chance to go, am I talking too fast? Okay, good. Not too long ago, I had a chance to go to New York City and I got a chance to stay in one of the new trendy hotels. Now, this is the fully automated. It's really, really big right now in, in, uh, in the Eastern uh, Hemisphere, uh, in Asia specifically. But it's those fully automated, you just download an app and you never even, I walk in, there's no one at the front desk. It's just a sign that says download the app. And I said, wow, this is going to be an interesting experience. So I download the app. It lets me know what room I'm at. You go to the door, you put your phone on the door. I said, this is incredible. Put my phone on the door, the door just ding. I said, look at that. No one, I didn't need one person. You know, I was like, I, I don't even know if I want anyone else honestly. I think I kind of liked that process. Now, it began to get on my nerves because anything you needed, I had issues with my remote, no one at the front desk to call, so I kept, they kept saying, just tell us on the app. And I said, now, I don't want to do app chats. We all know app chats are whack, okay? I'm not trying to rap, but... <laughs> So I'm like, hey, issue my remote. They're like, you know, how can I help you? I said, just told you what the issue was. And so I'm kind of like trying to get past all the bugs. I wanted to go to the workout facility. I got down to the gym. I couldn't. They said, hey, schedule a time for the workout time on the app. And I said, if I have to go back to this app one more time. And sure enough, I had to go to the app. It told me this gym was not available for one more hour because it's already been booked by somebody else who beat you on the app. And so I had to book my time a little bit later. I said, this is inconvenient. I just wanted to open the door and go in like most places. And so I was irritated by day three, but I will say this, right around midway through day three, I began to realize that if I once I learned how it worked and I was able to look ahead and say, I'm going to book the gym, I was able to look ahead and say, here's how the chat works, it really did become something so, so convenient. Now, that's not something that you all can copy-paste in the churches, right? We can't just say all of us can just take the day off and put fully automated churches. So it's a little bit scary. You're like, why are you even sharing this story? I'm sharing it for one reason. The future is coming, and there's no stopping it. And every single one of us feels that. And even though we're looking at how culture and how society and how the world around us can engage with it, it's distinctly different with us because we're in the, people, we're in the business of people. People have to know that we see them, that we remember them, that we know their names. So even though they can, we can read article after article on innovation and say, look at how hotels are beginning to become more and more automated, for us it all falls on deaf ears because we say we can't make automated churches. So the church has to build a totally different type of innovative system. 
But most importantly, and this is what I hope to do over these next few years, is say, what does the culture look like that as we begin to build a, 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 a culture that fosters uh, creativity and innovation all around us. So there's a lot I'm going to cover, so I'm going to make sure I stay on my notes here so that I don't start running down rabbit trails. Um, I love this story of, of a husband with a wife, and he's looking at his wife, and she's kind of preparing dinner uh, that night, and not, I'm not trying to make traditional arguments. I know I'm from the South now, but I'm originally from the North, I believe. My mom was a single mom. She ran her business, so I'm not just saying all women can cook. It's just the story. Just want to make sure I put that out there. I'm not trying to get canceled. Oh my goodness. I saw my whole career flash just that fast. And so... He's looking at his wife who's cooking dinner on Tuesday. He usually cooked it on Monday. And so, uh, <laughs> come on, we got to pivot now. We got to pivot. We got to stay relevant. And so he asked her, hey, why do you always cut the ends of your roast off? She said, that's just the way I always saw my mom uh, cook her roast. And so he sure enough uh, calls her sister and says, do you do the same thing your sister does? And she says, yeah, I cut the ends of my roast. That's just what our mom always did. And so finally he says, I got to call your mom. I don't want to bother her, but I'm going to. So he calls their mom and he says, hey, can you tell me why you cut the ends of your roast off? Because your daughters are doing it all the time. And, her mom, and the mom says, well, when, we were growing, when they were growing up, the pan I had was too small. And so I had to cut the ends off in order for it to fit in the pan. That's why I did it. I don't know why they're doing it. <laughs> and I remember listening to that story and chuckling because I thought that's the perfect lead-in to my first point here. And I'm gonna put it on the screen just to make sure you guys don't miss it. And that is many practices, most practices are initiated to serve a purpose. But as time changes, many practices can lose their usefulness. This is what many young people entering the church are feeling right now. You're walking in and you're thinking, I, I can leave that on screen for those that are trying to take the notes. You're immediately thinking, you know what? I'm seeing practices that are just outdated and you're immediately ready to change them. I remember taking my job as director of experience and I said, we're going to change Hollywood in three years, people. Buckle up. And it did not work out like that at all. Because like I said, they had a culture and the best thing for me to do was understand the history. I remember one of my bosses said early on, he said, you're very passionate about change. He said, every single time you run into a system that you don't like, stop and ask for the history from that system. Every, every rule has, a, has an entire story behind it, and it's truly guided me. And I tell a lot of young people, a lot of young creatives and innovators, I say, every time you bump into a system or rule, stop and say, can I have more clarity on the history, the same way the husband said, can I get clarity on that? The first key to us is we're moving into a multi-generational church. And that is there are leaders that have built systems. And there are young people that are entering the church now that see it in a totally different way. And they want innovation. They want change. They want to say, why can't we build a TikTok account? Why can't pastor give us a 60-second sermon? He's like, okay, there's a lot. Well, we, well, let's talk about it. But let's first understand why we have the systems that are in place. So to the young people in the room right now, that's really just for you. Yes, there are going to be practices. And yes, a lot of those practices may have lost their usefulness. But it's your job to do your due diligence and say, let's have those conversations versus just judging them. Because judging them doesn't do anything. So hopefully we begin to sit around the table and say, let's start by looking at what we have here. What are we doing? And then asking the big question, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? What are we doing? Let's start with videos or what are we doing when it comes to a live experience? And then why are we doing it? And it's incredible because a lot of times as you go on that journey, everyone starts buying in. And there are people who built that system 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, who'll say, well, we did it then, we did, then we did it for this reason, but that doesn't even fit right now. So I'm willing to change it now that we're having this conversation. 
But the good thing for all of us to know is there are rules, there are rituals, and there are traditions in churches, especially, in fact, I'll say the church has the most, that it's just, this is how we've always done it, especially if you're a church that's been around for a long time. I think it's always most difficult to change a church that has a long history because you got to go back and find its history as to why it takes such pride in it. And so a lot of times they'll say, this is just how we've always done it, and this is just something that we're used to. And so really determining and having these conversations are going to foster innovation before you ever can actually put it into action. You have to change people's mentality on it before you do anything else. And here's why. Wise leaders know when to change something. I always say, hey, every wise leader knows when it's time to change. Even if you need to be reminded, that's okay. But you know, after you've been reminded, it's time to change something. This could be better. This is at least worth the conversation. Which leads us to our big question, and that's this. How do we, a church or organization, foster a better culture of innovation? And this is the big question that I say over the next two years, I could tell you, tell people, hey, email me what's working for you. As I'm talking to organizations, this is what's helping working with them as I'm continuing to talk to so many churches. We all are striving to learn, hey, what does it take to foster a culture of innovation once people have shifted and committed to the journey of innovation. Journey first. Why are we doing this? Let's begin to have a conversation as to what's needed, why did it come from, and then what does it take to begin to build a culture where people say, I feel like I'm working at a church that values innovation. If you have people that are saying that, they're going to stick around. They're going to stick around because then that shows they're willing to look at theology, something that's unchanging, but they're willing to go about it and say, what's our method and approach to it? And that's where the exciting adventure comes into so many people that are looking and saying, I can do this day after day, year after year, because I have a church that values innovation in its approach to gospel and theology. Okay, so 50 years ago, if we were to look at the Fortune 500 list, 50 years ago, I should say, uh, yeah, 50 years ago, the Fortune 500 list, uh, 500 of those companies that were the top in the world, 88% of them now no longer exist. 88, just 50 years ago, top 500 companies in the entire world, 88% of them no longer exist. Why? Because of this single thing we're talking about right here. So I'll start by saying, or I'll continue by saying, innovation is not easy, which is why it's an ongoing conversation. It's difficult. And the reason why it has to be intentional in your everyday conversation is, hey, if we take our eyes off the ball, we end up just falling into patterns, falling into systems that are just have been around, and we look up one day and realize we're not connecting with people the way that we used to. And whether it's companies that we've seen all around us or whether it's the churches that you've been working at, the church is realizing right now we are not immune to this the same way companies are not. The same way 88% of companies aren't around 50 years later, there are churches that are struggling right now 50 years later or 20 years later, or even 10 years later, and saying, why aren't we connecting the way that we used to? And so the conversation of innovation is front and center for every single organization seeking to connect with its consumer or its person sitting in its seats, the person who believes in them. And we're trying to help them believe in something even more. And so as we're realizing it's something that we can't escape, as we're realizing this is something that we need to face head on, I'm going to start trying to give us some practical tips and practical advice uh, to make sure. And I say this because people change, human beings change, and that is the first place where innovation has to truly, truly, that's the first truth, I would say. Innovation begins with people. We're in the people business, <laughs> So you understand how we have to innovate on so many different fronts because we're dealing with people's hopes, we're dealing with people's fears, we're dealing with people's mistakes, we're dealing with people's salvation, 
We're dealing with people's view of who they are in the world around them and who they are to themselves. But innovation starts with people. Why? Because technology doesn't change. People change technology. People change. Human beings change. And so when we're saying everything is changing around us, what we're saying is people are changing. I always tell churches who are like, it's just difficult to keep up with the world around us. I was like, it's difficult to keep up with people? Because that's what we're saying when we say that. The world around us is wanting this. People are wanting more of this, and therefore technology follows who? People. So if people are beginning to want more convenience, want things more on demand, then we're learning so much more about people. And the more we understand about people, the more we can begin to say, okay, well, if people's desire is this, including here in our town, Arkansas, or Indiana, or Ohio, or New York City, now we can begin to ask the questions that matter. So many times, I love what Elon Musk said one time. He said, most engineers end up working most of their lives solving questions that don't even matter. The faster you can realize the question you're working on doesn't really matter, the more you can get back how to best efficiently use your time. And I think churches are doing that. We're doing the exact same thing. What's the greater question? We can sit at this table and talk about how stressful it is, but we're seeing this trend of behavior as humans change. So what do we need to do now that we are understanding humans in this new light. All right, so there's this challenge, and I'm gonna, put, I'm gonna show you this a picture, a graphic right here. It's called the Marshmallow Challenge, and innovation hasn't been new, and honestly, it's been something that we've been studying for a long, long time. Well, this is something that uh, is really, really great. And it started a long time ago, 1980s, this massive boom of programs aimed to foster innovative thinking and entrepreneurship. And so it was a wonderful exercise where teams had to build the tallest structure. And as you're looking at the screen, this is what they were given. 20 sticks of spaghetti, one yard of rope, one roll of tape, and one marshmallow. 18 minutes are placed on the clock, and the marshmallow must be placed atop at the end. Now, what made the challenge unique was many of the types in the groups participating were from engineers, architects, business executives, MBAs, and even kindergartners. So they even brought in kids to do this project. This is what made this such a, uh, a raging success as they were looking at it. And every year, without fail, MBAs did worse than every single other group in the entire exercise. What? MBAs. And what makes that crazy to say is these are the innovative thinkers of tomorrow. These are the ones that we're trusting with the future of America. And we're saying, hey, you are the ones that are coming out of college with fresh ideas. And yet every single year, MBAs did worse than any other group. And I'll go into specifics. The average structure built was 20 inches. The MBAs, 10 inches. Even the kindergartners were whooping them, building structures two and a half times taller. What? How is it even possible? The MBAs usually spent the first 30% of their time, and this is where we begin to look at the specifics as to how it happened. The MBAs spent 30% of their time planning the structure and allocating roles. <laughs> he said, oh my goodness gracious. I know exactly. So they spent 30% right out the gate. Before we get started, let's go ahead and really, let's, let's just spend it planning what we're going to do and allocating roles for people to go ahead and delegate those positions to. Then 60% of the time actually building the structure. And finally, with just one minute left, they'd confidently place their marshmallow on top of the structure only to watch it collapse under the weight of the marshmallow. I don't want you to miss this. The business students wait to the very end of the exercise when they've already built the entire structure 
to interact with the most valuable piece of the puzzle, the marshmallow. I remember writing this and I love that I said, the confidence they had in their plan leaves themselves with no time for adjustments, you know, just in case they're actually wrong. They've mapped it all out. They've thought through it. They've talked about this in at least 14 team meetings. We're going to do it. Now you can imagine after you put this much investment in it, when that marshmallow is put on top and it falls over, how disheartening it is for the entire team. We thought about this. Whose role messed up? Uh Uh-oh. Here comes the blame game, right? These are all effects that happen when you choose this method. Now, let's look at the kindergartners. Okay, we'll actually look at what it is. The kindergartners use the complete opposite approach. They start with the small and stable structure with the marshmallow already atop. So they start, they throw that marshmallow right up there. They said, okay, let's start with the small, stable structure. Okay, this takes them just a few minutes. Now they have optimal time left to what? Experiment. They don't believe that there's one answer to this puzzle. They play to figure it out. They believe there's many ways to build this structure. In the same time the MBAs build one structure, the kindergartners are able to build four to five different structures, allowing them to outperform MBAs every single time. They play. There's so many times I'm talking to executive teams and they say, I don't get the creative department. It's like they're over there frolicking around their unicorn costumes like Doug Fields. (laughs) And I said, listen, in order to understand innovation, in order to understand creativity, if they're not playing, they're not doing their job. This is not a finance department. This is not a strategic department. This is, they don't need to be entitled to all the stats that are going to scare them. So a lot of times when I'm sitting with creative teams and they're talking about all the things that, are, that they're worried about and attendance is dropping, I say, well, who's giving you that information? You don't need all that information. Why are you getting all that information? All that is is a distraction. You need to be looking at, listening to what are people saying. If, if the executive team realizes that numbers are dropping, then they should be asking some people, having focus groups to ask them questions and say, hey, tell me what are some things that you're liking or not connecting with the way you used to at this church. And the creative team should be given those questions and answers. They don't need to be given all the stats and data that's going to only make them feel like they need to clinch and not make any mistake. Because we obviously can see, we don't want to go back to that approach of what happens at a lot of churches and organizations is because of the fear of failure, Everyone just likes to gather and sit at tables for months on end, planning to make sure they can minimize risk. And in the end, they end up putting the marshmallow on top and wondering why they didn't have success. Whereas the ones who are oblivious of failure and believe there's a lot of ways to play this, there's a lot of ways to do this, they end up having success that so many times other places don't. So as we begin to craft these spaces, executive teams working with departments that are saying we are fostering innovation, it takes all of us realizing, hey, what's our distractions? What are the things that get in our way? And how do we kind of foster this island? I like to call it an island a lot. This island in the church, which allows people space to imagine, to innovate, and most importantly, to play. It looks weird to every other department because they're like, are you serious? Why are they out there on Friday? in the park? Why are they over there taking an exploration over there? Well, because you need to continue to keep them fostering their minds or continue to keep engaging their minds as to what's around you. What is happening in our city? What are the stories as you're walking down the street? I love this one writer. He said, uh, uh, every time I go in there, I say, how, many, how long are you guys at your desk when he works, talks to creative teams? And they say, you know, eight hour day, I've been at my desk five hours. And he says, no, you need to flip it. You should be at your desk for three hours and out on town five hours. I know some executives are already looking at me saying, don't say that to my people. That is not 
But think about that. You should be at your desk three hours and out in public five hours. Why? Because the stories are out there. We're not connecting the culture as much. Oh, sure. How long are you at your desk? First question I ask any creative team. Well, I'm here all day. You're at your desk. You're in this building eight hours a day? Yeah. But when are you out there talking to people at Starbucks? When are you out there talking to people at the mall? When are you out there having lunches with people or, or, or getting a chance to have focus groups out there at the WeWork? I'm not sure where it may be. Maybe you don't have a WeWork. I know they're having a tough time right now. But when are we getting an opportunity to interact with culture? And as we begin to really rethink our workday, it allows us to begin to rethink our results or really experience results. So here's what I'll say in final thoughts of this before we kind of jump into some practical steps. Um, we often tell teams to plan it out. Look at it from every angle is what we like to always say. Look at it from, from every angle. How will people react and respond? Which this process can obviously take weeks, months, sometimes even years. While the lesson we learn from this exercise is the longer your team works to plan in a vacuum, the more likely they are to fail. That's just the result that this lesson taught us in the 80s. It's easy for us, and there's so many companies that are going back to the marshmallow challenge now because they're like, we learned this already in the 80s. It's just that as pressure is put on us, none of us want to fail, so we go back to being the MBAs. So what if we teach teams to spend less time developing a plan of what they think is right and instead ask them to spend a month experimenting like the kindergartners and testing some of their core beliefs on how their followers are going to behave? And here's why I say that. Because innovators will never be fortune tellers. I always tell them, you'll never be fortune tellers. It's not realistic. Instead, our goal is to teach them how to be detectives. Each and every one of you should be constantly pushing to say, hey, your job is to be detectives. Why? Because detectives work hard, facts and data. And this is why I said, every time there's a problem, there should be a question following it so that we can look at the results of that question. Innovation is always going to be connected to people. People will always give us the answers. Every time they give us the answers, it's our job to listen. So our job as a team of innovators is to say, yeah, yeah, it sounds prestigious and cool to say I'm one of the innovators at the church, sure. But your true job is just to be a detective, nonstop, doing the work of asking the questions and striving to make sure that you get as much information as possible. People who use facts and evidence to back up their assertions to how followers will behave are the ones that end up having the most success when it comes to innovation. I'll say it again. People who use facts and evidence to back up their assertions end up having the most success. Here's what that means for us. If we think that people are going to flock to the product, we have a t-shirt or we have a, a, a new event that we're thinking, if we think that people are going to flock to the product once it's complete, well, let's pre-sell 20 of them before the production. It's weird, but I say, so sell, sell 20 of them next week, pre-sale. If they go like that, there is a demand for them. Then we know. Let's continue giving energy towards this. We can sit around and talk about this. Do we think people are going to care about it? Let's just, we have social media. We got nothing else to post on, t- on Tuesday and Wednesday. Let's say, hey, guys, we're thinking about this idea for T-shirts. We're thinking about this idea to do this. If you're interested in it, we're giving 20 away right now for people who are interested. If 20 of them go lightning fast, there's demand for that right there. We've got data to prove it. So when we talk to the executive team, who's going to say, why do we need to give budget to it? We'll say, I'm happy you asked. We actually did a little quick little pre-sale to kind of gauge public interest. They went in one hour. And every time executive teams will say, really? Well, now we're talking. Now that's numbers. I can work with that. Innovators are detectives. Detectors always are searching for the data to back up their assertions. So we're not just going in there saying, I think, I just feel, (laughs) I just feel like the church should really be focusing more on varsity jackets right now. 
Why? I, it's, it's red hot on like Urban Outfitters. What are the data? Did you do the work? It's way past feeling. It's about saying if you think varsity jackets are it, figure out a way to get to the people if you're thinking about changing it up and doing varsity jackets this season. They'll always have the answers that you need. I'll do a couple more. If you think they're willing to pay $49.95 for something for a ticket or for an event you have, well then set up a simple landing page and see how many people click buy now button at that price point. You immediately can tell right there and say, we're going to do a simple splash page. Tell us who's interested in buying this ticket. We're going to set it at $49.95. You can look at the data and begin to see, okay, people are interacting with that. That's new for our church. I know it's difficult when you're thinking. A lot of times when it comes to new ideas, they require a budget. If you're like, we're going to split the budget, 50% coming from us, 50% coming from our consumers or the ones sitting in our pews, then you're going to have to begin to use ways to say, how can we gauge how to price things correctly? A lot of times I have big ideas and I'm like, I think Easter can look like this. And they're like, that's going to cost a fortune. So Joe, I said, you're right. So we got to figure out ways to supplement or, or kind of add some additional funds when it comes to, because obviously I didn't want to just make my church pay for it. Now I was at North Point. So we had a little bit of money and cash to spend. So, uh, but when it comes to many churches, I'm working with them now, really taking the innovative steps to say, how can we look at the money of financing this idea? People would love this, but we can't bear the burden of it all. So we got to figure out how to ask people, how much would you want to pay? We love this idea. And we already asked you two weeks ago if you love the idea. You all responded yes. But now we got to look at how to finance the idea because that's going to cost some money. What do you guys think about 1999? Would you be willing to pay for that? All of a sudden, your poll on Instagram or your poll on Facebook skyrockets to the roof. And 400, we need 200 people to reply. Well, now all of a sudden, you can go back to your executive team and say, guess what? 200 people said they would be willing to buy it at $30 a head. What's interesting about that journey to innovation is people love it so much they become invested in something because everyone loves to see the process. And it's so easy for us to say, we're going to just sit at this table and make sure that what we offer the people is pristine and packaged and then wonder why they weren't connected to it. Whereas if we just simply use the same tool that we're seeing already happening, which is more of a transparent innovative culture that allows and welcomes people in, you'll begin to see the results of that so much higher. You're essentially crowdsourcing everything and saying, you're part of our church. We value you. As we're striving towards new ideas that are high risk, we need y'all. We need y'all's input and we need y'all's help. As y'all begin to engage, engage your community like that, you'll be shocked at how many incredible innovative ideas they come up with and how all those high-capacity business leaders at your church will immediately say, oh, there's a way you can do that for even less. Can let me connect you with this person. It's incredible what happens when you simply open up and say, we're thinking about this, but here are the obstacles. And our team has been working nonstop, but I think it'd be great to toss it out to you. Okay, I'm going to stop ranting and raving uh, about that. I can see you on. Uh, I'll say this last one. If we want to create real innovative churches, ones that can survive a nonstop changing culture, it begins with the shift in how we think versus how we play. So let me toss five elements. These are the five elements I have here. And these are the things that I think uh, matter. Not matter most, because I know there are people here like, we could talk about this forever. What's interesting about innovation is where you're located, your geography, mixed with your demographics, mixed with your history, are all factors when it comes to how you can innovate as well as budget and everything else. So it's hard for me to sit on this stage without walking your halls, walking with your team and understanding your community and say that this is gonna be the one-step approach to innovation. But my hope is as we take a bird's eye view of what innovation looks like, we could begin to say, oh, this is how it applies. I love what Dave said. Content is no longer king. You remember what he said? Context. 
and I said, he nailed it. That's literally, context is no longer king. Context is going to be king. How is what you're doing relating to the people in your community, people sitting in your seats? So I don't want to act like the content I have is the king that's going to help everything, but it's you all being able to take this content and say, now let's put it in context to what it looks like in our building and with our team. So number one, put a number on it. And this was actually stolen from Craig Grishel. I remember him saying this a long time ago, and I remember thought, well, this is great for innovation. He was talking on it through some other realms, but I, I think it's perfect for innovation. And here's, here's what he said. When you're looking at the question of how could it be better, it's a necessary question, but imagine just putting a number on it of saying, how could this be 100 times better, which is maybe intimidating to your team, but how could this be three times better? Or if they're saying, how could this be better? A lot of times if I were to say, how could this be better? I would start with that question. People will start giving me answers. I'll say, that's good. I like these answers. Now, looking at those answers, how can it be 10 times better? And it's funny how that simple adding a number pushes everyone outside of their comfort zone. It doesn't need to be extreme. You say, how could this be better? Oh, I'm thinking this. We could probably do this, but okay, that's good. How do you think we can make this 10 times, 10 times better though? And simply saying 10 times pushes people to say, well, if we, well, well, if we were going to make it 10 times better, we'd have to be thinking like this. When you're looking at shifting people's mentality, even people that are more rigid, a lot of times putting a number on it allows people to have the context. And so to someone who says, make it better, well, I think like this, this, and this, and I don't want the wild dreamer in the room talking about, well, we need to do X, Y, and Z because that's not realistic. What makes it realistic if I simply ask, I want to look at ideas that make this 20 times better. Now, suddenly, when that person talks, I, what I'm doing is I'm giving this person a clear runway. There's a wild dreamer on your team. There's a wild dreamer in your, in your midst that thinking, I can't give my ideas because I'm always ridiculed. All you need to do is put a number on it that clears the runway for them. I want, if we were to look and say we're going to make this 50 times better, what do you think? Now, suddenly, the people who are more rigid are going to say, well, I, don't, I don't really know what to say about that but suddenly the people who are more outside the box thinkers of your team are going to say, well, 50 times. I'm happy you asked. And they're suddenly going to feel like they're supported, encouraged, understood, and heard. Our job as leaders is to make sure we're clearing the runway and we're fostering the environments to take care of each and every type of creative in the room. Okay, and I say that because there's, there's three buckets I like to say. This is kind of off book, so I'm not going to try and land on it, but I always say there's copy, there's curate, and there's create. Those are the three. There's some people that lean more towards create. Those are going to be like your Enneagram fours on your team. Bless their hearts. They're trying their best, but they're like, I just want to create something from the ground up every single week. Other people are more copy. They're like, hey, this worked on Jimmy Fallon. It'll work on our stage. Let's just copy, copy, paste right there. When you're looking at a Sunday, when you're looking at a Monday to Thursday planning schedule, there'll be times you need to lean on those that are more prone to copy. Curate says, I saw this on Pinterest. I saw this right here. I think we could take it at this church and adjust it. So curators, I would say, are oftentimes the most esteemed people in the church. So when I'm talking to teens, they're like, the copiers always have great results. They saw it on Jimmy Fallon. They saw it on whatever show. It works. Curators saw it on Pinterest. We have a picture of it. So when they present their ideas, when they present their ideas, we see pictures of it. So we're like, oh, they saw this at this church. Okay, it works. So now they have context. Creators, the ones that are simply the wild, imaginative beings that are saying, I just, I saw this while I was riding my Peloton. <laughs> we're oftentimes like, What? Why is the church losing the wild dreamers, the wild innovators? It's because when you're looking at the tight schedule that we're on, it's easy for them to just look inconvenient. And then we just say, hey, that's just, right now, we need something that we're pretty sure about. 
So when I'm saying we need to put a number on it, you're clearing way for them right there. I'm talking, I'm talking, so my head always think three buckets. I'm talking to the creators. Okay, the copy and curators, they're going to win every single week. They're the ones that are going to perform. But I love you. You're going to get your promotion. But it's this person. I'm trying to give you space so we can understand how to receive your ideas. So that's just that. Okay, so that's, that's neither here nor there. Okay, so let's move on to the second one. Number two, celebrate failure, which we've kind of already alluded to. We've already kind of dabbled with this idea. Innovation doesn't happen overnight. Failure comes with the territory. So how are you going to handle it? Uh, Do you have a system currently in place that appropriately celebrates and analyzes failures along the way? If not, if you don't have that system, it will become increasingly difficult to remain inspired and motivated. Here's what's crazy. (laughs) We just failed on stage about an hour ago. It was a complete failure. I remember them saying last night, because I didn't know we were going to do that until last night, and they said, we're going to sync up all campuses. And I said, now, now this sounds kind of crazy. And they said, no, but we really want to go down this road. And so when I got a chance to walk off stage and talk to the team, I applauded them for one reason. I said, listen, we got to try it. What I love about this room, as we're failing in front of y'all, y'all are smiling back at me. You're smiling. A lot of people will say, if we've had an epic failure in front of this audience, like they're going to cross their arms and be like, this is terrible. But I, what I always tell you, what I always tell teams is never underestimate your audience. Be transparent and tell them, I don't really know what's going on right now. This is new for us. We're trying this out. And it's funny how audiences will always extend grace once they know what's happening. Because now they're saying, oh, they're trying this right now. We're the guinea pigs. We're the first ones. It's failing. In front of our faces. <laughs> what I love is I say, hey, don't be surprised. There's some people who are tech savvy who, get, who begin making their way to front of house later on. Tonight. I say, I do have ideas as to how that wouldn't have failed the way it is. I said, what's beautiful about once you put context on it, now they know how to help. Everyone's bought in. But how do we celebrate failure? It's not a, man, we can't do that again. That was a complete stupid idea. It's not a stupid idea. It was an incredible idea. We just have to figure out how to tweak it and do it again. So the next time it comes back, people are like, here they go again. Number two, woo, okay, buckle up. But I guarantee if you told them, now this fell, in fact, here's a clip of what happened last time and everyone in your church is going to be loud. So we're going to give this a go one more time. Now everyone's bought in sitting at the edge of their seat. Why you've created an investment suspense. This is the host in me, I'm sorry. But it's like, oh, now we're like, okay, now we're talking. Innovation is exciting, y'all. It's exciting, but it takes us letting people know we're doing it. We're going there. We're not scared. We're going to get back up and say we celebrate our attempt. We'll be back. Okay, so that's it. Celebrate failure. Number three, I love this one. I got this one walking with Pixar, and that is your gallery should mirror your room. When I was looking at their system, they, they go through a process of, yes, we sit at the table and talk about it, but as we're in the early stages, we begin bringing in family members, the custodians, the maintenance teams, the kitchen staff. So when it comes to early screenings of like the rough uh, pictures more as the, before they really put all the animation and budget behind it, they sit and invite the families of a lot of the people in their communities. And I said, so why are you bringing in the, the kitchen staff? Why are you bringing in all the people who are cleaning the windows and, and, and the carpets? And they say, because these are the people that actually are sitting in the seats buying the tickets. Wow. And I thought, oh, that is true. What's interesting about our church is we just had so, we were so tight on time, we never really made the time to have that many focus groups. We would have focus groups when there was a big issue or there was a really big problem to solve. But for them, they said, no, every step of the way, we bring in these people again. Why? Because it allows us to hear regular people's perspective. And it's always insightful for us for them to say, I mean, this is good, but this isn't really what my kids care about. My kid actually cared about that character. 
He said, a lot of times we think that this is what most of the audiences care about when it comes to the story. We show them, we say, what character did you relate to the most in our Easter story? And suddenly the crowd says, oh, we related to the mom. And suddenly we think, well, we were putting all this effort in establishing the kid, but it's the mom that's the hero to the story to your everyday person. So as we're looking at telling the stories that connect people, we say, we want to just sit down with a few people, a couple moms or a couple dads or a couple kids and say, how do you think about, who was your favorite character in that story and why? Before we assert all the budget, we just kind of do a little rough and say, who do you think that your favorite character would be? And they say, well, I think I relate most to this person. Now we know where to assert our money because we've got data. We did the work. We were detectives. Never stop. Ask. I understand it adds on extra time to the process, which we'll talk about that at the end, but that's why it's so important because it allows us to have direction. So make sure you're leaning on your gallery. If you're filling up seats, if you have over 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people coming, you have an incredible gallery. An incredible gallery that you should oftentimes be leaning on to say, we're going to meet with them. We want somebody in this part of town, someone in this part of town, someone in this part of town, someone in this part of town, as we're dissecting these ideas. All right. Uh, number four, which is what I feel like I've been saying over and over and over, and that is the data will determine. We can take our best shots. We can be professionals. We've been doing this for X amount of years. I can tell I've been doing this now for 20 years working in the creative industries. doesn't mean anything. Why? Because people change every day faster than I ever can keep up. My job is to continue to ask questions and try my best to learn about people as much as possible. But in the end, the data will determine. So once we get it out there, we'll be able to look at it and say, okay, that's what people actually think. A focus group, this is what they actually said. Even when it comes to breaking our hearts, because we wanted it to go right, but the people have determined it will go left. And make no mistake, the people will always determine where it goes in the end. The worst thing a company or organization could do is try to wrestle people who have already asserted where they want something to go and what they want it to do. Now, there's a tension in this with us, right? Because a lot of times people want the easiest route to Christianity, but we're trying to tell them the true path to Christianity, which is not going to be so easy. But it allows us to stop and say, let's talk to the people and say, how do you think this looks like in your life? Or how, how do you think, if you were to talk to a friend and say this topic about salvation, a lot of times it allows us to say, so they want us to go here. Now we know better when we're crafting our sermon what to acknowledge as a legitimate tension. Now as we're thinking about how to begin to tell the stories, this is what they want, but this is what we know they need. And this allows us to get the context to say, so let's make sure we allot this amount of our story to make sure we address what they want. So, that we can, so they can feel understood before we tell them, but what if we told you that this is more what it looks like and here's why? So this is, goes, all goes back to the data will always determine where we should go and how we should get there. All right, last but not least, respect the human conditions standing in the way. There's competitors and then there's the human condition and the latter is more important. It's so easy for people to look at all the competition that they're seeing. We're competing with Friday football, or I should say Sunday football. We're competing with church down the road or competing with sports programs in our town. But the reality is what you're competing truly with is the human condition and understanding people is the key to remaining relevant to them. Uh, I love this example I once saw when I was reading a magazine. It says, another film company did not eliminate Kodak. Kodak was not eliminated by another film company. Kodak was eliminated by Instagram. They said they didn't see that coming. 
they had looked at all their competitors. They were a step ahead of all their competitors. What they didn't see was Instagram. And what people wanted was a way to share their pictures instantaneously and even adapt their pictures so that they can put personal touches on something so that their, their page, their grid, their representation of how they see the world could be more like themselves. It gave people more control. And that's what eliminated Kodak. Kodak said, all we can do is give you the best looking picture. But what if I want to make my picture ugly with 14 pic, uh, filters? I want to be able to make my picture ugly. I want to be able to make my entire grid ugly. That's what Americans and all across the world said. We want to control the beauty, what we deem beauty to be. Now, what this is interesting is I would say what it, what it showed us is people were less interested in reality, Kodak, this is what the beauty picture would look like when you're looking at the waterfall. And it became more enticed with, I want to look like what I imagine it to be, fantasy. And so you begin to see this trait. That's a whole other breakout. That's, some, uh, that's like the mentality of you. And I love it. I love that. But it allows us to see so much when we're looking at why did they choose Instagram over the human condition is why. The more we're in tune with the human condition, the way that Jesus was as he walked with them, as he sat at tables, the majority of Jesus' conversations were across the table eating with others. Why? He took the opportunity to ask questions, have conversations, get to know people on a human basis, on a real basis, which is what we are called to do. We wanna thank Sojo for breaking down why innovation matters for our ministries. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love this review that said, I'm a bivocational youth pastor and I always get a lot of good advice and knowledge and just some great stuff from the leaders that y'all interview. Hey, thanks for that review. And we would love for you to join us at Orange Tour to continue learning what it means to lead humans. Go to orangetour.org to save your seat for one of our one day training events for leaders and volunteers in a city near you. We'll see you next time on the Think Orange podcast.